Everything God does is the overflow, the outworking of who he is. May I say that again? Everything God does is the outworking, the overflow of who he is. His actions emanate out of his being, his character, who he is, his attributes, all that God is. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, we read these words. Behold, which means look, see this. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. He has become my salvation. Not only does God provide salvation, he is the believer's savior and salvation. Behold, look, see, God is my salvation. To understand salvation, we must therefore understand who God is and see that salvation is God's activity. It's the act of God. The Bible is not a works program on how to get to heaven, a manual of do this, you'll get there. It's a rescue program. It's a rescue program that is outlined by God. We are required to do all of the commandments of God, and yet we don't. And God, in His love, sent the Savior who acted on our behalf, living the righteous life we should have lived, obeying all of His own commandments. The lawgiver became the law keeper, to die in the place of law breakers, that they might have a righteousness not of their own, but is by him because he is our salvation. The profundity of that is just immense, and it'll take us not only our lifetime, but eternity to plummet even some of the depths of just these statements. God is my salvation. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is our redemption. God is our salvation. I'd like us to go to the book of Daniel. I'm going to simply read, maybe comment a little bit on a very familiar passage. But I introduce this passage because it's taking us in a direction for our teaching today. And one or two other passages will be brought forth as well. But Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is extolling his own virtues. He is very impressed with himself. And in fact, basically gets the Lord's Prayer wrong by a single word. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, of course, was yet to be written. That would take place later on. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, mine is the kingdom, the power and the glory rather than thine, giving glory to God. As we read from verse 28, Daniel chapter 4 verse 28, hear the word of the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's my comment. He gets the Lord's Prayer wrong here. Mine is the power and the glory and the kingdom. There it is, verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Uh, Let me just stop for a moment. You'd think if free will was this amazing thing that God would never encroach upon, God never would do anything with outside man's uh, submission and acceptance. Uh, He can't do anything unless we allow him to. You'd think, wouldn't you, that either God himself or some angel will come and interview Nebuchadnezzar and say, look, I've got got a proposition for you. You, You're kind of arrogant right now. And what I'd like to do, of course, I need your permission. That's, That's essential to this. It's not going to happen without your permission, Um, but I'd like to make you deranged for a while. I'd like to cause you to look obscene and ridiculous by acting out as a madman, in fact, becoming a madman, and um, yeah, just looking and sounding and smelling like a beast of the field, like a cow. Uh, would you sign on the dotted line here? I've got this proposition, but I need your agreement. Would you, would you say that's okay? Would you give me permission to do this? Of course, I'm being ridiculous, but so is the idea of the will of man encroaching upon God's will, whereby he is forced to only do what man allows him to do. That is equally as ridiculous as we're going to read here, that's not what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar speaks in arrogance, surveying his kingdom and says, mine is the power and the glory. And God immediately, while the words were still in the king's mouth, verse 31, this is what happened. There fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So much for asking Nebuchadnezzar's permission. Verse 33, Immediately the word was fulfilled. Against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Notice those words. He's able to humble the proud at heart. Oh, no, 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 no. He, if we remain proud, he can't, he can't humble us. He can't make us humble. Uh, yeah, he can. He can do what he wills with the inhabitants of earth. And that's all stemming from a pagan king as he declares the ability of God in his creation. He is the creator. He's the sustainer. And he's able to intervene as he wills. As the scripture says, the heart of the kings in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. Not the will of the king, the will of God in the hand of the Lord. And that's speaking about the greatest in the empire, the, the, the king, the greatest in the country, the king. And the message is, if he can do that with the king, he can do it with anyone else. Those who are in the kingdom of the king have less authority than the king, but if God can do what he wills with the king, he can also do it with anyone else. That's the message. Go also to Isaiah chapter 46. The 46th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Where we are told this about God. In fact, God speaks and declares who he is. Again, we're, we're concentrating on this theme. That what God does is the overflow of who he is. Well, let's find out who he is, and God reveals himself in Scripture. In fact, what we have in the Bible is God's self-disclosure. Rather than being fuzzy or trying to work out who God is by our senses somehow, by our observations, God reveals himself in two aspects, in nature and in special revelation, the Word of God. General revelation is creation. We know him as creator according to passages like Romans chapter 1. Creation tells us there's a creator. It tells us much about God. That's general revelation. But in scripture, we have special revelation where God says now, here is the truth about me. Isaiah chapter 46. Look with me in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. Again, God is revealing himself. This is self-disclosure. I am God and there is no other. Mormons take note. LDS take note. There is no other God. Mormonism is the most polytheistic religion in the world. Could talk much about that. But God says, I recognize no other God. Not only do I recognize no other God, there is no other God. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me. Now, notice the action of God in verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God does not only know the end from the beginning, He declares the end from the beginning. So at the beginning point, He knows where the end will be and He declares it. He makes the end. Think about that. We're talking about all the events of time in this verse. The end refers to not the end regarding a certain set of actions or things that may take place. It's talking about everything. This is who God is. God knows all things and declares what will be at the end, not close to the end. You know, well, it's looking like 80% of the way this is what's going to happen, like a, like a football game where it's 52 to 0 from, for one t- team and there's only four minutes left. You can, with great accuracy and laws of probability, say this team that's so far ahead is going to win the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's not that. It's before there's any game, before there's even a field, before there's even a coach or two coaches, or before there's a land, before there's a nation. God declares the end of the game from the beginning. Uh, That's who God is. I'm God. This is God saying, this is who I am. I am God. There is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish a great deal of my purposes. No, all of them. All my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from A far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Here's what I want us to see. It's so glaringly obvious, it hardly needs to be said. But I need to say it because in much of the professing church, there's not this understanding. Here's what I want us to see. God gets His will done always. I've talked about Dr. R.C. Sproul and how He came to Scottsdale in the year 2000 and it was as if he threw a rock into my theological pond and the ripple effects were enormous and they are still continuing to this day. Well, think about this as a rock in your pond, (laughs) your theological pond. God gets his will done always. Hear the splash of that. Now see the ripple effects. That's who God is. This is God telling us who He is. This is not obscure. 
This is not, well, that's your interpretation. This is just as clear as crystal. This is who God is. God always gets his will done. Always, 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 always gets his will done. When we talk about salvation, it's a massive subject. I think the only bigger subject in the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. That covers everything. I pastor on the west side of the valley here in Phoenix, but originally, as you might know, I'm from England, Chester, England to be precise. On occasion, some people have come to me and uh, tell me that they are about to travel to London, to England, and they say, do you have any advice? Well, I ask, how long are you going to be scheduled to be in England? And you say, London, how, how long are you going to be in London? And uh, that's of interest to me, but no matter what their answer is, my advice is the same. Here's, here's my advice. Take the two-hour open-top bus tour of London with a live guide. You'll see many of the attractions of the city. In fact, you'll see the main attractions. You will. Tower Bridge, Tower of London, St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, London Eye, Big Ben, Houses of Parliament, Buckingham Palace, Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Madame Tussauds, National Gallery. You'll even see Downing Street. On and on we could go. You'll be informed of many other exhibits, places of interest that you would not have been aware of. And I would say this, here's my advice. Take that tour and make a note of the things that interest you further, things that make you say, hey, hey, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to spend more time exploring that. I've got to visit that before I leave. Because of that two-hour tour, you will have then seen every major attraction. You can say, I've seen that. I've, I've seen that. But the tour will allow you to prior, prioritize your visit so that you get to visit what truly interests you. Now, when folk have made that trip and then come back to Arizona, they've said, thank you, your advice, your advice was really helpful. Uh, we took the tour, we wrote down five, six, seven places. We really wanted to visit and enjoyed them immensely while we're still able to say we saw the main sites. Now, I mention this because in a similar way, I want us to take us on a short tour of what God says about salvation. In fact, as we think about that illustration of London, there's, there's no way we can take a, a fast tour of salvation in Scripture and do the subject much justice except to see the big picture. And there is very, very helpful insight gained when we see the big picture. And the big picture is what God does in salvation is the overflow of who he is. And God always gets his will done. What we're talking about and the difference between my analogy of London and what we're talking about today is that these doctrines I'm about to address are at the very heart of our faith. And they're not something that we'll just visit for a day or a weekend or even a week. 
These doctrines will captivate our heart for eternity and we're going to be lost in wonder, love and praise forever of not merely the doctrines of God's grace, but the God of grace himself. We'll be lost in wonder, love and praise in awe of our God. I didn't always embrace what I'm teaching. Uh, I, I had the idea that God didn't intervene unless we allowed him to. Well, just check with Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king. Um, there was no sign-up sheet, no uh, sign on the line here because I can't do anything unless you allow me. None of that. God gets his will done, and that's God's declaration. God can reach anyone. I'm a testimony to that. I talked about R.C. Sproul. He came to Scottsdale, the year was 2000. He threw that rock in my theological pond and the ripple effects are still being felt. And he can, he can reach anyone with his truth. Well, we have to be open to his truth. The Lord can open the heart so that we want his truth. And it's our Bibles that tells us that what, that's what he does. Remember Lydia in the book of Acts? The Bible says of her, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. That's what he does for anyone who truly knows him. Because our hearts are not open, they're closed. The Bible relates the fact that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Think of a list of all things. That's a lengthy list. Think of deceitful things. That could be a lengthy list as well. But the heart is at the top of the list. It's more deceitful than anything. It's deceitful above all things. There's your list. Put the heart above it as that which is deceitful. I wrote down 35 words, each of which we could, with great profit, spend an hour discussing in our time together. And these cover the realm of salvation. If you're reading theological works, this uh, category is called soteriology. Never be um, upset because there are words you never understand. Allow information to come to you, to expand you, to stretch you, stretch you. and um, many of these words are just easy to understand once you hear them once or twice. And it's like any ology word, whether we're talking about psychology or uh, any of the ologies out there. Soteriology is two words sandwiched together. Soter, S-O-T-E-R, Soter, or Soter, refers to the saving act of God. It means to save. Soteriology, therefore, is the study of salvation. And in theological language you, and in theological tones, you, you, you're going to come across that word. Soteriology. Don't, don't worry about it. Just understand. Soteriology means the study of salvation. And... Everyone's got one of these. <laughs> uh, those who don't believe in salvation have some kind of soteriology. It's not a good one. It's in error, 
but we all have soteriology. We're all theologians. Everyone's a theologian. R.C. Sproul wrote a book with that title. Soteriology, 35 terms. Are you ready? Adoption, atonement, calling, cleansing, conversion, counsel, decree, effectual calling, election, expiation, faith, foreknowledge, foreordination, forgiveness, glorification, healing, imputation, justification, mortification, planning, predestination, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, regeneration, remission, repentance, resurrection, sacrifice, salvation, sanctification, substitution, union with Christ, victory, and vivification, V-I-V-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N, vivification, it's hard to say it. These are, as I say, 35 words and we can spend an hour on each. It would be profitable to us. I love teaching on these themes. But our starting point in seeing the big picture, again, with the analogy of just seeing London on a fast tour, we're seeing salvation on a fast tour and it would encompass these 35 items, these 35 terms. But the starting point is this, God as He really is. You see... If we start our study of salvation with man and his feelings, we're going to have a man-centered view of life and reality and the specifics of salvation. And that's an illegitimate starting point. From the very first verse in Scripture, the Bible is God's revelation and self-disclosure about Himself. That's the right starting point. Where are things headed? They're headed for God to be glorified in all His attributes, put on display. All of His attributes, His love, His grace, His mercy, and His sovereignty, His holiness, His justice. This is what we call a paradigm shift. I'm sure you've seen in some of the Business works out there, the need for a paradigm shift. You've been looking at something one way and you now see it a different way. And the illustration is put up, you've probably seen it, of uh, what you see in a figure. And um, you look at it one way and it's definitely an old lady, very, very old lady. And then you look at it from the same picture, the same figure, from a different angle and you see, no, 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 it's, it's, it's a young lady. It's a very beautiful lady. It depends on how you look at it. And you've been looking at the thing and many people look at it and say, I can't see the old person. The other one says, I can't see the young person. And um, so it is, but both are in view. And that's a paradigm shift. Oh, I... I the old lady, I can, I can now see how she's a, a, a young lady. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Wish I could just send you a file right now and you can see what I'm talking about if this is new information to you. But a paradigm shift 
is talking about the way we look at things. And if we start in the wrong place, we'll have wrong and very, very harmful conclusions. Um, unless we make the shift from a man-centered view of life and of God to a God-centered view, we'll never grasp the content of Scripture. Uh, there's big stuff I'm saying here. We'll never grasp the content of Scripture. We'll never begin to understand the God of the Bible. And the starting point is God, as He really is, who always gets His will done. You, you know this if you're a lady, a lady with a, a blouse you're putting on or a man you're putting a shirt on. If, if you get the wrong button in the wrong hole at the top, you're going to be wrong all the way down. I remember go, about to go out to a meeting and just before I left, looking in the mirror and noticing that I'd exactly done that. I had put the wrong button in the wrong hole at the top and it was wrong all the way down. And thankfully I saw it and was able to make the change before I went outside, before I went out in public, you know. Uh, it's many, many years ago, but I still remember it. You only need to do it once to realize, um, I, I need to do this every time. Look in the mirror before I go out the door. But if your doctrine of God is distorted or insufficient, it's going to be wrong all the way down. And this is just a basic starting point, God revealing who He is and what He does. Any distortion of the character of God poisons the rest of our theology. But get God right, and you then have the tools in place to get things right all the way down, so to speak. R.C. Sproul, I've mentioned him already. Let me give you a quote of his. Here it is, quote, I really think that's the central unique factor of Reformed theology. It is that it's relentlessly committed to maintain the purity of the doctrine of God through every other element of our theology, end of quote. If you read something called a systematic theology, what, what you have in a systematic theology is the attempt to harmonize all the scriptures concerning certain subjects, starting with God. Moving on to talk about who God is as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal persons. When we talk of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, we talk of Him as one person with two natures. He's truly God. He's truly man. And when we come to salvation, what happens in many systematic theologies is you get to page 37 or 58 or 104, and we're talking now about salvation. And what was spelled out on pages 1, 2, 3, and 4 about the fact that God always gets his will done, he's sovereign, he's Lord, and he declares the end from the beginning. Sometimes, many times, what is written in the book on page 1, 2, 3, 4 about who God is, is forgotten or not brought into play when we get to page 138 and we're talking about salvation. 
And that's a big mistake. And Reformed theology, biblical theology, the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. To be Reformed, as I have it in my head, is to be biblical. When someone says I'm becoming more Reformed in my thinking, I'm thinking, oh, you're getting a clue as to what the Bible teaches. I want to be saturated with the Bible and what it says and be able to look at all of it. And in a systematic theology, that, that's what I'm looking for, to systematize our doctrines according to what Scripture says. Everyone has a theology. Is it accurate? And it's Scripture that informs us as to accurate teaching. So, this is page one of our systematic theologies. God is on the throne. And everything we say about God when we look at God as he's revealed in Scripture, everything there is still valid when we talk about salvation or when we talk about the church or when we talk about eschatology, the study of the end times. God is Trinity. And we have a Trinitarian salvation Here's a a great rock to throw into anyone's pond. God, the Trinity, saves sinners. God saves sinners. And who's God? The Trinity. See what I'm doing there? I'm allowing what we're spelling out on the early forms of our own thinking. God is God. No one else is. And he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God saves sinners. The members of the Trinity have different roles in salvation. The Father chooses. The Son lives and, and then dies for the, uh, the people the Father chooses. It's not the Father who dies on the cross. It's the Son of God. The man, the Lord Jesus, dies on the cross for the chosen. And then the Holy Spirit applies redemption to the exact same group. Notice again, the rock being thrown into the pond here. The Trinity saves. The Father has a different role than the Son, but it's the one will of the one God to save, and the Trinity saves. The Father chooses, the Son lives and then dies for the chosen, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption to the exact same group. This is, this is fathomless. I, I remember, and in fact, I put it in my first book, uh, 12 Whatabouts, uh, under the heading, Eavesdropping on a Holy Conversation. It's a lengthy quote uh, by C.H. Spurgeon in what is called, in theological language, the covenant of redemption. And C.H. Spurgeon speculates, but speculation based on what we have Uh, insight to regarding what scripture teaches he speculates about an eternal conversation a, a conversation that took place before time before there was a creation and let me just quote it bear with me it's a lengthy quote now in this covenant of grace Spurgeon writes we must first of all observe the high contracting parties between whom it was made 
The covenant of grace was made before the foundation of the world between God the Father and God the Son. Or to put it in a yet more scriptural light, it was made mutually between the three divine persons of the adorable Trinity. I cannot tell you in the glorious celestial tongue in which it was written, I am fain to bring it down to the speech which suiteth to the ear of flesh and to the heart of the mortal. Thus I say, run the covenant in ones like these. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless, beyond the number of stars who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself, because I can swear by no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merit of the blood To these will I give a perfect righteousness, these will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Thus run that glorious side of the covenant. The Holy Spirit also, as one of the high contracting parties on this side of the covenant, gave this declaration, I hereby covenant, saith he, that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuges of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith, whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them, and they shall be presented at last spotless, and faultless. This was the first, the one side of the covenant which is at this very day being fulfilled and scrupulously kept. As for the other side of the covenant, this was the part of it engaged and covenanted by Christ. He thus declared and covenanted with his Father, my Father, on my part I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become a man. I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. 
but I will bring all my sheep of whom by my blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd. I will bring everyone safe to thee at last. This quotation is actually from Sermon of Spurgeon's. Uh, the blood of the everlasting covenant was delivered September the 4th, 1859 at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens. What a quote, but what profound insight. You see, in mission, save God's people, save the elect, Jesus loses none of those given to him in eternity past. As the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. It's true to say that mission save the elect becomes mission accomplished. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, he redeemed, he ransomed the people for God out of every tribe, tongue, people group, and nation. I, I trust that this rock is landing in your pond. I trust that God as he really is, accomplishing all he sets out to do, when we look at all that scripture says, I believe what we just had quoted to us, the quotation of Spurgeon is absolutely biblically accurate. There was a covenant made in eternity past to save a people. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The giving was in eternity past, the coming is in time, and the one thing, the giving, is the cause of the other thing, the coming. If you've come to Christ, it's because God first gave you as a gift to Christ before the world began. It's fathomless. We'll always be asking why, why me? God could have left all of us to our own rebellion. He would have done none, done no injustice in, in, in not acting in salvation to save anyone. If there was no one redeemed, all the holy angels would still be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's no requirement to show mercy. There's a requirement to be just. And God in the gospel is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans chapter 3. What a plan. And if you understand that God has started a work in you, he has saved you, you've understood, you've been converted to Christ, he's given you eyes to see the beauty and the treasure of who Jesus is. He that began the good work will finish it. You see, if it was you that started the work, your choice was the ultimate decision maker in salvation. Well, it's like flipping a light switch. You know, I flip the light switch on into the room I'm standing in right now. I can flip it off. So it is, we can 
come into salvation or come out of it if it's us that starts the work. But when God starts the work, He's committed to finishing it. And you remember, He does all He pleases. He gets His will done always. Always. That's who God is. And salvation is what He does and God saves sinners. What a great starting point in the study of salvation. Get this right, and you get the right button in the right hole at the top of the blouse, at the top of the shirt. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the record of your word, how clear it is. May we be taught of God and learn from the word of God to understand this wonderful message of salvation. It's one that we will study for all eternity, Lord, Help us to absorb what we can now as we love you with our heart, our soul, our minds, and our strength. This is loving you with our mind. We want to search out your word and understand you, you and what you do. And forever and forever and forever we will give glory to you. Thank you, Father, for choosing. Thank you, dear Son of God, God the Son, for coming and living and then dying in our place and rising again from the dead so that all who have faith in Christ, that those who repent and believe this good news are given a righteousness, are forgiven, a righteousness that is perfect because it's the righteousness of Christ. This Christ who is not only alive but is now seated at the right hand of all power in this universe, all authority given to him. What great and glorious good news. May we always live in the good of what Calvary has accomplished. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.